This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sports Illustrated magazine has sold for practically nothing. Just a dozen sneaker phones and a Mickey Mantle rookie. Well, actually, $110 million, so it's not literally nothing. But there was a time when, adjusted for inflation, the expense accounts of the Sports Illustrated writers would have added up to about $100 million. Sports Illustrated basically invented sports journalism on a national level, invented highbrow narrative writing for sports, and still, for me, represents the pinnacle of craft and reporting in sports writing. I have friends, I know people who are there, they're top-notch people, but my associations are a bit old. I mean, today, the AP describes Sports Illustrated as, quote, Sports Illustrated, which began publishing in 1954, covers sports and has an annual swimsuit edition. Well, put that on the headstone, I guess. That's pretty much what it all boils down to. The swimsuit edition, that was a weird aspect of Sports Illustrated. A one-week pause in the normal business to do this thing that is really, really, really only at best tangentially related to the core business. And they did this because, well, I guess sales were good. But if you take the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade or the Scripps Spelling Bee, two core businesses with a side product that they're maybe famous for, at least the Spelling Bee or Parade are, you know, a kind of service for the community. The swimsuit issue, it went from appalling to conservative people to being appalling to liberal people with maybe having one or two years where it was appalling to no one, just made irrelevant because of internet porn. The new buyer, Authentic Brands Group, owns uh, licensing rights to Shaq and Muhammad Ali and will look to leverage the SI brand for marketing purposes. Their CEO spoke to Variety, of Sports Illustrated medical clinics and a Sports Illustrated gambling business. The new owners say they won't mess with the journalism that much, we hope. The crazy thing is, Sports Illustrated magazine, as a brand, is still really strong. It's just that what's weak is an illustrated magazine about sports. So if you could give me the Sports Illustrated magazine without that other part, we're in business. Okay, one last thing. Remember that reference I made to sneaker phones? If you're a little too young, you might not realize there was a time when if you subscribed to Sports Illustrated, they threw in a phone in the shape of a sneaker. SI was really proud of mastering this technology. Apparently, they thought that the vast American viewing public would be so enraptured with a phone in the shape of a sneaker, they would just have to subsidize Frank DeFord's 8,000-word pieces on snowshoeing. The SI sneaker phone was the centerpiece of Sports Illustrated's marketing. We're here at an athletic shoe store to see people's reactions to this sneaker phone from Sports Illustrated. Now, the only thing is, we're not going to show it to them. We're going to let them discover it for themselves. Come on. You know, the 70s and 80s were a heyday for just clearly orienting the audience. There's no throwing you into some strange situation with jump cuts or some off-putting music. You get an announcer in a suit. He literally beckons you with a hand gesture as he invites you into a sneaker store where he, get this, has placed a phone, a phone, 
among the wall of sneakers, customers are beside themselves. Hello? The sneakers ringing. <laughs> I've never saw anything like that. Did they all ring? <laughs> <laughs> Tony, get a load of this. Come here, come here, look at this. I can't believe it. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> a sneaker phone, that's great. Sports Illustrated presents the sneaker phone. You know, Sports Illustrated magazine at that point realized that the future of their sport magazine relied less on the sneakers and more on the phones. Well, they might now be assigning half a dozen reporters to the NBA Finals and another cadre to the upcoming Women's World Cup and not have quite so much riding on disrupting the medical clinic space. On the show today, I spiel about Robert Mueller. I guess this is the last time we're ever going to hear from him, like, I don't know, Luke Skywalker or Frosty the Snowman or something. But first, Derek Hamilton is an academic and thinker whose ideas are influencing a number of Democratic candidates. There's the federal job guarantee, baby bonds, and ways to address the wealth gap. Those are just some of the bold ideas he's putting on the agenda. I want my baby bonds, baby bonds, baby bonds, and we will get them, or at least a discussion of them, up next. Professor Derek Hamilton is the executive director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University, or as they say it there, the Ohio State University. It'd be terrible to have him be the professor at just an Ohio State University. I first heard of Derek Hamilton when Beto O'Rourke was being interviewed. Hey, Beto, what are you reading? And he said, the work of Derek Hamilton, this in economics terms might be known as signaling. Let's find out. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Did you know Beto was reading your stuff? You know, I did. I, well, someone who knows him asked me for anything that I've been writing that might be of interest. And uh, to my surprise, he elevated my work of, amongst the top of things that he's reading. But yeah. I, I certainly didn't know he was going to make that announcement. See, I've seen your work show up, not in the person of Beto O'Rourke, but Cory Booker. A number of Democratic candidates have championed some of your big ideas, but it seems like there is a big overlap between your ideas about a jobs guarantee and your ideas about baby bonds, and baby bonds especially are Cory Booker's signature issue. Yes, that that's certainly true. Um, I think we are at a moment when many of the Democratic candidates are looking for big, bold policies to really break up the rut of our increasing inequality. Okay, so the stuff that you study that is of interest to me, I think I and most of my listeners would understand, uh, as terrible as this is, why it is. And it's because to accumulate wealth, you have to have assets and income. And for much of American society, blacks were either denied that or there were huge barriers, especially as compared to whites. But what else? What else is going on beyond the pretty obvious point that a people can't accumulate wealth if they are never allowed to earn in the first place? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't even attach as much credence to the role that income plays in comparison to endowment to begin with or receipt of an inheritance or some transfer at a key point in one's life. Income is obviously important. Um, and income can impact one's wealth, especially if your income is high enough to permit you to save a great deal. Um, but the vast majority of Americans uh, use their income for consumption. Most of the savings that comes from uh, the typical American 
is being in a vehicle that will passively accumulate over one's life. And that could be a mortgage that uh, where the home appreciates or having the automatic savings that comes about from paying down debt as opposed to paying a landlord for rent or having a job that, ac- that accumulates retirement savings over time. You know, basically the point I'm trying to make is that few Americans, a few, a small share of Americans actually save out of their incomes without having some vehicle for savings. So I under, I have also read you and others talking about, and this is quite true in American history, things like redlining and, and housing discrimination, but also factors like if the same people bought the same priced home in many neighborhoods 30 years ago, just uh, the black person buying in the black neighborhood will get much less of an increase than the white person buying in the white neighborhood. Everything I've said is true? That's a great point. I mean, it's, in addition to historical barriers that were structurally put in place and state-sanctioned, that's a key word, state-sanctioned, we also have contemporary issues, which is lending discrimination and real estate discrimination, as well as uh, overall environment where homes where you have a predominantly black neighborhood do not appreciate to the same extent as homes that aren't in a predominantly black neighborhood. So here's what I wanted to ask you. If I'm, I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying about let's not overemphasize how much home ownership has been a driver. Let's acknowledge that it also reflects wealth, as you just said. For years, economists of goodwill who are quite upset by discrimination want to remedy it. African-American economists have said, well, you know what the solution is? Since home ownership is such a huge driver, what we should do is get more black people into homes and furthermore do things like eliminate redlining and housing discrimination and all the other factors by which the homes in black neighborhoods wouldn't appreciate as much. Now, were they just wrong? Is, did they get something wrong? Is it not enough? Why is that solution to the problem either inadequate or not a solution at all? It's a non-nuanced solution that really is not addressing the real barrier. Now, of course, I'm for uh, eliminating discrimination in home ownership right. and providing. Ve- so, so we uniformly agree that those things are bad. Uh, but underneath home ownership in the first place is that capital endowment. And what I'm arguing for is that I'm all for anybody who chooses to buy a home as their pathway to generate their wealth, go right ahead. I own a home, so, you know, I'd be a hypocrite to say anything otherwise. But rather than emphasizing the home aspect of it, it is underneath that a capital endowment that gives people agency. Right, right. So the policy, so the policy people who are saying, ah, home ownership is the key, you're saying you got to go two steps ahead to get to the point where there can be home ownership. That's exactly what I'm saying. It also puts forth a narrative that's not quite accurate because if it's just home ownership, then why don't we just put people into home ownership? And then as, as we've been pointing out, it's not just home ownership. It's that capital endowment also. And then, you know, the other point is that ha- even if you have that capital endowment, it doesn't necessarily address the fact that you don't have access to the same appreciation for homes that others might due to various structural factors. Okay, pitch me on the baby bonds. <laughs> pitch you on the baby bonds. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, what is the source of inequality? As I've just been describing, some individuals, when they're a young adult, have access to some transfer, some endowment 
that affords them an asset that will passively appreciate over their lifetime. I've cited to you that very few Americans engage in outright savings without one of those vehicles of of savings out of their income. So if that's the source of inequality, having that endowment to put you in that passive vehicle, why don't we give everyone as a birthright an opportunity so that they can accumulate assets and have that economic security just by simply being being born in America or, or being part of our society, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, we can use terminology like a stakeholder society. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that if, if the source of inequality is not really based on whether you study hard, work hard, but mostly driven by the fact that uh, if you don't have access to capital, then you're locked out of capital accumulation. Why don't we provide everybody with capital? Now, of course, capital is not enough. Just having capital doesn't ensure you're going to have wealth throughout your life. But one thing's for sure, not having capital locks in inequality unless you're lucky. All right. So how much and who would get it and who would pay for it? Okay. So how much? The mean baby bond and by the way, it's not quite a bond. It's more like a trust. Mm-hmm. So it would be more accurately called baby trust. But uh, alliteration. I like the alliteration. Ba- yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so the, the mean account would be about $25,000. And the most wealthy families, if you're born into the most, wealth, the most wealthy family, you would get part of the social bond and receive something more nominal, uh, maybe $500. I think Cory Booker sets it at $1,000 for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but if you're from one of the most, from the poorest family, then you can get upwards to fifty thousand dollars, fifty to sixty thousand dollars. That when you become a young adult, you can use that money to either part purchase a home with a down payment, finance an education, start a business, or uh, according to the Booker plan, be able to roll it over in a retirement account until you're ready to use it. So how much would it cost? It would cost. About $100 billion. There are about 4 million babies born in the U.S. per year. So uh, it would cost upwards to, say, $100 billion, um, and that's ignoring the administrative costs, which uh, would not account for that much more. So let's put that $100 billion in context. Right now, we spend over $500 billion promoting asset development of, of Americans, things like capital gains, reductions, and tax rates, uh, things like deductions from mortgage interests. The problem isn't that we promote assets in America. It's to whom that asset-promoting budget goes to. Very much of it goes to those at the top end of the distribution. The bottom 60% of earners receive about 5% of that entire endowment, whereas the top, I believe it's top 10%, receives over 60% of that endowment. So if we were to take that $500 plus billion budget, that's just one example by which we could certainly afford to seed these accounts, which, by the way, we wouldn't have to distribute. In other words, the trust would have time to accumulate resources over time until the child actually reaches adulthood. So this would be a more progressive way to, f- to promote asset development as well as a, a fairer way for, for Americans. Now, tell me about the jobs guarantee, because I, to me, the baby bond idea is interesting, but one reason is that the price tag, you sold me on the price tag, it's relatively modest, whereas I've been looking at the price tag for the jobs guarantee, it seems to be about half a trillion dollars. But sell me on the idea and why it's worth it. 
All right. So shifting gears to the federal job guarantee. Um, The federal job guarantee is designed to eliminate involuntary unemployment altogether. The federal job guarantee is designed to eliminate the oxymoronic statement of working poverty. And then it also empowers workers where they are by removing the threat of unemployment. But your question was about the price tag. Um, So the price tag of uh, upwards to... In, in a good economy, $500 billion. In a bad economy, probably talking about more more in the level of $700 billion. So one, I think that price tag is certainly worth it. If we think about all our anti-poverty programs together, they amount to about $700 billion. So of course, we would have reductions in cost of those programs if we had a federal job guarantee. Two, it will stimulate the economy. It'll stimulate aggregate demand obviously by putting more income into people's hands, um, but also facilitating a greater public infrastructure in America. We could use the jobs to reimagine the type of society that we want. We could green our economy. So there are lots of benefits associated with the productive work that would be done. And then there are also other costs that we should think about. Think of the cost of unemployment that plagues society. Think about the psychological damage that's done to individuals that desire to work but can't work. Think about the spillover effects on their families and, the, and their communities. Think about incarceration that results from lack of jobs. And then also think about the benefits associated with that person who has a job but frankly has no agency because of that threat of being unemployed. And as we move into a society where we have these non-compete agreements, where workers that work in fast food industries, if they lose their job, they can't so easily go get another fast food job. Um, These are costs that a federal job guarantee would be able to address. Do you, have you studied and do you think or don't you think, to phrase it in the rhetorical, that if people are literally guaranteed a job, it won't have at least some measurable income on the quality of the work they put in? Will it have some, me- if they're guaranteed a job, so which work are we talking about? Those that are currently I'm talking about. Those? I'm talking about if you can't be fired, maybe you don't work as hard or as well. Yeah. Well, the notion of can't be fired, uh, that might be, so we would... Talk about a right to work, but you don't have a right to be disruptive at work, slack at work. In other words, you can be removed from work. You can be suspended. I'm not talking about a scenario where there's no discipline that can be enforced on workers. Um, But nonetheless, I guess you're you're, you're making a case that will that create some disincentives to engage in, in, in work? If there is an anecdotal or some cases of individuals that try to game the system, there is no perfect policy, if I'm honest. Uh, yeah. And that is a level and a bar that I don't think is fair because, frankly, we could find that we could find some slack or some inefficiency in anything we do. But I don't think the source of poverty is because people choose to try to um, game the system and desire not to work. I fundamentally believe in people. I fundamentally call me naive, pie in the sky. Um, I fundamentally believe that if you provide the right pathways to people and the right structures, that people will achieve and be successful and be their best self. So that that is one of the values that I start with, and that's what I'm betting on. Derek Hamilton is currently the executive director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. If you haven't gleaned it from this conversation, his ideas are getting out there, germinating the minds of many a Democratic candidate. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. 
I appreciate this opportunity. It was a fun conversation. And now the spiel. No man betrays his middle name more than Robert Swan Muller III. He neither preens nor glides nor trumpets loudly. There's never been a transformation, just a stolid, straightforward solidity and solemnity that in 2019 registers as so devoid of drama, it almost scans as not human. Mueller spoke today in a statement that NBC News pre-described as, quote, significant or substantial. So some more S words go along with our straightforward and our solidity. S words, swords, Trebek, swords. No, not a sword, not a dagger, maybe a kind of weak highlighter. Robert Mueller only said, I've already said what I'm going to say. We chose those words carefully and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. Maybe you can extract from the press non-conference one sentence as being newsworthy. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. That was already stated in the report. But I guess that use of the highlighter was enough for presidential candidate and more notably Senator Cory Booker, to change his stance and announce that an impeachment inquiry should be opened. I say notably Senator because as such, it means he's a member of the potential jury who must decide by a two-thirds vote whether to convict the president who's been impeached. Booker tweeted, Robert Mueller's statement makes it clear Congress has a legal and moral obligation to begin impeachment proceedings immediately. Which I do find confounding. Mueller's statement? His statement was just a recitation of the Mueller report, which was released a month ago. A few days after reading the Mueller report, Booker said this in regard to impeachment, quote, there's a lot more investigation that should go on before Congress comes to any conclusions like that. But today, based on the books on tape version of the written Mueller report, let's go for it, guys. All right. Maybe Booker, like a lot of observers, wanted the Mueller statement, just like the Mueller report, to say a lot more than it did. I mean, if that's what you want, we could deliver a version where Mueller does make some bona fide news. We have editing equipment here. What if Mueller said this? Two years ago, the acting attorney general released that information through fake, sophisticated cyber techniques. Or this. And as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to hack into computers and networks used by the Clinton campaign. All right, that would have been different from what was written in the report. That would have been a new thing. A few people are saying, even without the new stuff, no, 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 this is a game changer, his statement. The saying out loud versus reading the thing. It just changes everything. In New York Magazine, Eric Levitz writes, Robert Mueller's statement was huge news because the media hates reading. Great argument, but sadly, the media will never know it because it was presented via the alphabet, the written word on a computer. I think Eric was saying the only reason to consider it huge news would be if you hadn't read the report. But apparently, this criticism of reading could also be read as saying it really is huge news because we're more, you know, auditory learners. America no like read book. USA must hear word. Once USA hears word, USA understands word. So let's contrast. Here from the Mueller report is Mueller's written word. 
if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. And here is the Mueller statement, Mueller's spoken word. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. I guess speaking out loud does pull you from a vaguely 19th century locution into the present. I'll give him that. But you know what? If it is true that hearing the words spoken aloud are so moving as to prompt U.S. senators to endorse impeachment when they could not before, I mean, if hearing it out loud changes minds and wins converts, what if we set it to music? If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Well, set fire to the rain, Lordy B. You know, if you get the roots to beatbox under it. Okay, we played the main hits, the greatest hits. What have you got for an encore, Robert Mueller? I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Okay, kind of a bummer. Yeah, you know what? At concerts, no one likes the new ones anyway. And I guess now Congress is put on notice that they won't have a Pied Piper leading the way. And that's it for today's show. Listen, I I say this sometimes in the credits. I'm going to say it again. We have a good newsletter. It is called, I don't know what it's called. It's like a newsletter, but I know where it is. Slate.com slash just news. And it uh, will tell you everything that was on the show that week. Also answer a trivia question. Let me restate the trivia question in a more exact way, in fact. What English-speaking country's highest point is named after the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories and novels. Slate.com slash Gist News. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the Gist, and with their paid subscription, they will get a pork sausage that doubles as a weather vane. Okay, just a sausage stuck to a stick perpendicularly. Tuja Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, who, you won't believe this, but with her paid subscription, she'll get a Russian nesting doll where the smallest doll is actually a family of larval salamanders. The gist. Wait, is that a sneaker and a phone and a surveying tool and a personal assistant and a mailbox and a baby monitor? You just stuck an iPhone into a sneaker, didn't you? You jerk. Oomperu, depperu, and thanks for listening.